You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. Well, good morning, good morning, everybody. This is the 3CR Gardening Show, and uh, welcome to our listeners for 2024. I would like to start the show by giving a huge thank you to Lizzie Leaf, who has been managing our social media for a number of years. Liz dedicated um, herself to the role and uh, really took it on with great gusto and uh, creativity, and she has decided to step down after a long time, so we'd like to say thank you so much to Lizzie for that. And now we have two fantastic uh, nature-loving listeners who are going to take on the role. There is Daniel Jackson, whose beautiful moody nature images can be found at his Instagram page, at Daniel Jackson. And there's Tassie-based Liam Killick, whose images are at, at Liam underscore Killick. And uh, these two guys have volunteered to alternate months and uh, we'd like to say a huge thank you. But for now, I've got the pleasure of introducing three of our regulars. We have Jane Tonkin from Tonkin's Bulbs, Craig Wilson from Gentiana Nursery, and um, on the other side of the panel, and maybe (laughs) not be contributing very much today, (laughs) is uh, Royal Botanic Gardens guide, Virginia Hayward. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Good morning. Yes, Virginia, you got totally trounced by mozzies. Oh, my legs are absolutely mm. welted. Well, mm. it's disgusting. And, of course, I didn't sleep a wink last night. Yeah, okay, so we won't expect too much from you. We won't ask you to be spelling out plant names or anything. But I have random. to say, it is exciting being back on this side of the desk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, it's a bit funny for us seeing Virginia on this side <laughs> yes. of the desk. Don't panic, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the panel yeah. is still being yeah. operated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, so... Summer, what a weird summer. I've loved it. You've loved it? Yeah. You've got lots of rain? You've all had mm, lots a little of bit rain. more warmth would be helpful. Yeah. And yep. we've actually had a little bit too much rain. My grapes are shot and the cherry harvest up in the Villara Valley was shot, which is really hard for cherry growers because they only have one hit, yep. which is round December. 
and they just we had terrible storms in November and December mm. and the cherries got split. Mm, yeah. I ordered a couple of boxes from Farmers Pick and Farmers Pick are an organisation that collect all the unwanted fruit and veg that is, has been rejected by supermarkets and it's still perfectly fine mm. and they deliver to your home and uh, yeah and the cherries were amazing. Farmers Pick sounds excellent. Yeah yeah really good organisation so you get really weird shaped fruit and veg and of course they taste perfect. Cherries are so last month. They are, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Very on, much so. We're on to lychees now. Yes, actually, that's what, what uh, I was reading about. If you're having trouble with mangoes or finding mangoes or finding mangoes that aren't $400 each, um, lychees are the way to go. $28 a kilo, which, which I think is a huge bargain. Yeah, but you get that kilo container at Woolies or I. And they're uh, fantastic. And you eat the whole lot at once. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, people pay more than that for a bottle of wine. I think for a kilo of lychees, it's a bargain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> beautiful fruit. Yeah. yeah. But the grapes in the valley are getting spra- the bejesus sprayed out of them because it's been so wet, everything's really fungal. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The botrytis runs rife, um, and considering that it's quite humid as well, it's perfect conditions and stuff. Um, I love the cooler summer. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Craig, I, yeah. I, I don't deal with hot weather. <laughs> I'm very good at it. The only reason, I mean, for the garden, it's fantastic, mm. but for the propagating, the night temps could be uh, a little bit co- higher. Yeah, because yeah. it's like yeah. we're already into autumn when you look at the night temperatures and things. They've been plummeting. Yeah. 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 And the most extraordinary things are in flower. I've got things in flower that are actually spring flowering things, which I find and it's always a sign that something unusual is happening if spring flowers are flowering again. That is very weird. Well, I've noticed, well, I should say I haven't noticed many blue-tongued lizards around. Usually through summer they're going everywhere and echidnas as well. There's, I haven't seen one echidna this summer. I've seen lots of echidnas. <laughs> it's so yeah. weird. Um, I mean, we're in the bush, so usually you would think, plenty. Yeah. So there's quite a few that um, live on the farm, and then the road that runs through to the Sylvan Reservoir, we always do kidney watch on the way, um, and there's quite a lot of echidnas that just on the side of the road and things like that. So um, they're still out there, but I've mm. only seen two blue tongues this year too. So that's well, I've seen a couple, but they've been squashed. Oh. Mm. Oh, it's oh. sad, isn't it? I've got one living in my compost. Nice. That's good. <laughs> Which I really like. And I've got be careful when you turn it over. Yeah. <laughs> That's much too hard work. Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't think of it. compost yeah. then. <laughs> and I've also got one living in the garden bed next to the house, which always worries me. And I found the big dog, who's forty eight kilos, so really a big dog, bailed up there, barking, terrified of the blue tongue. <laughs> <laughs> So that pleased me. I want the big one to be terrified of the blue tongue, not yes. the blue tongue terrified of her. But not terrified of rabbits? Um, no, 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 no. The more dead rabbits I can find, the better. Mm. Mm. The rabbits are extraordinary this year. There are tens of thousands of them. We, uh, yeah, we've pretty much got gotten rid of ours, which is amazing. See the odd one. Oh, that is wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Oh, there's five that hopped across the driveway in front of me this morning oh. on the way out. So, you know, they, they are every, rife. <laughs> every time I meet, uh, time and again, I meet someone like AB who does not have rabbits and I just find that an extraordinary oh, we concept. Did. We did. And uh, we had a fox trapper come out as part of a council program and he was like, well, let's just start trapping the rabbits as well. And uh, so we did and eventually 
they've gone. I mean, they occasionally pop in from next door or through the bush or wherever they come from and, yeah, get onto them quickly. What sort of traps do they use? He uses, um, like, just cages and then leaves them and then, them. yeah, takes them, takes them away, shoots them and, yeah, mm. eats them and, yeah, That's uses great. the pelt, yeah. I might, if you have his number still, I might contact him. I do. Because I am desperate to try and get rid of some of mine and I don't want to poison. It's a bit harder for you, in fact, all of you guys, because you have neighbours and, I mean, we have neighbours as well, but because it's the bush, it's slightly different. Like, it's really hard territory where we are. I think some of my neighbours would probably be in on the act as well, which Mm. would make a difference. But yes, it is. I mean, what I don't have, which these two have, is deer, Mm. thank God. I've had one, one young stag come in, which terrifies me. Um, we have a local guy who's been shooting foxes. And he, he has an infrared camera and a drone. And the difference in the lyrebird population is phenomenal. Great. Yep. I mean, they're, they're, they're right up to the main road now, the lyrebirds. I thought you were going to say because of the deer they've been affected somehow. No, the lyrebird population's exploded. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because the foxes are down. Foxes are down. Well, they say foxes and cats. I mean, the cat problem is course, just yeah. massive. We mm. did have a, a wild cat, which my neighbour dispatched of, mm. which I'm pleased about. And I've got a fox, big male. He's so cheeky. He just wanders down the drive, looks at me in the kitchen window, virtually waves. It's sad, isn't it, because they're so beautiful. They are, yeah. They're a cross between a cat and a dog, aren't mm-hmm. they? They're just that, yeah, beautiful, beautiful animals, but so destructive. I'm so destructive. Mm. And the cats, I think, are, are, you know, are a shocking problem because mm. they're so clever. Yeah. You know, they'll just take out it. And, and I had a cat who I managed to train with a tennis ball. I trained her not to take um, birds, but I never managed to stop her taking skinks. And, you know, she wasn't eating them. She was just playing with mm. them. Mm. And so I haven't, I'd love to have another moggy, but... I just haven't got one because I've got so many birds, so many small birds, and it was so hard training her. I used to every time I'd see her go for a bird, I'm, I've got very good ball skills. <laughs> I'd throw the tennis ball, and as she was going for it, I'd hit her with the tennis ball, and it worked, but it took some dedication on my part. Yeah, I think they should either be indoor cats or caged outside. I mean, there's some great runs that you can mm. either put together yourself or. Bye. I think that's right. I mean, you've got to, if you've got, I have got so many. There were no small birds at my place. I've now got everything. Mm. I've got wee bills, which are the smallest bird in Australia. And the little ones came out this year. They, they nested, they nest quite, this year they nested quite close to the ground. And the th- there was three and they came out and they literally, for about two weeks, they played. They just chased each other around. They'd stop on your head for a second and then off they'd go again. You know, and I don't see the wee bills except... At breeding season because yep. they're too high and too fast. But, oh, dear, it was wonderful. It was Adorable. wonderful. Marita yep. and I were watching them one day and one of them stopped on Marita's hat. <laughs> <laughs> it was just beautiful. Very cute. The, the joys of um, and, yeah, having those birds. And the salvias are what have brought a lot of the birds mm. to my place. Yep. I mean, they don't ask for a passport and they love salvias. Yeah, but the eastern spinebills, sir? Uh, they've been chased away by the New Hollands. Oh, yes. So I don't have as many. Because I used to have New Hollands. They were the only ones I didn't have. Now I've got heaps of them and fewer spinebills. I love the spinebills. They're a loss. Yeah, yeah, we have, we have lots. They've just turned up at my place. They can only come in the summer in the warm weather. 
Yeah, and we, we have them all summer. They're, they're beautiful. And what do they go for in your garden? Salvias. Salvias, yeah. Butylon, yeah. Yeah. Fuchsias. But there's been a call, I saw in the press, there's been a call for us to try and get rid of the Asian minor. You know, the brown Oh, one yes, the, the one that's called common minor. The yeah, com- with the yeah. funny eyes. Well, I mean, they are a huge problem. They displace native birds mm. out of their hollows and... Yeah, they're, they're, they would eat they're a bully birds too. Yeah, they're bully birds. So. Well, all the miners are bully birds. Yes. Yeah, but we have to excuse our native ones, don't mm-hmm. we? <laughs> oh, I don't want the be- I don't want the bells in mine because no, I've got paddlelots and if I, you, and they bully, they chase away the paddlelots. Mm. So I don't want the bells. They are sound the, wonderful. Are the paddlelots still nesting in the old tree stump that came down? I think right. so. Yeah. Yep. Which I think it's the reason I left it there. I've ten days before I had an open garden. The biggest tr- gum tree in the garden went over, and it was just too wet. This was two years ago. It was too wet to get the machinery in to cut it up. We decided it was an architectural feature. Yeah, it all looks great. Yeah, it's and now it's covered it's in rows. Yeah, and it's a seat. and it's a seat, and it's covered in rows, which is protecting the clay yep. and so the paddlelots are using the clay to nest yep. in which, which is another bird that sort of lives in the treetops until they nest and yeah. then they come down and they um, um, make a hole in the ground a wall in a bank in a in, bank yeah. yes and they eat the lerp that <coughs> causes such problems for the gum trees mm. whereas the things that chase them away the bellbirds only eat the covering of the lerp mm. they don't eat the lerp <coughs> itself the sugary bit so you know we want we want the paddlelots, not yeah. the bellbirds. It's funny that we have the paddlelots as well, and the mating call of the male, I've got to say, is so annoying. Can we have a demo, please, Amy? Like, continuously. It's really like, high pitched. Yeah. Go, go somewhere else and find your woman, can you? <laughs> <laughs> As much as you love hearing them, it's yeah, extremely high pitch. Well, when I'm taking a walk at the botanic, though, I love the bellbirds because I've had a lot of a couple of big walks lately, and they've all been overseas people, and so they've got no idea what that sound is. You know, and it's it is such a thrill that just that mm. beautiful bell. Yeah, that, so clear, isn't it? And then I take them down to Long Island so that they can actually see the bellbird, and it's extraordinary. They can't believe this little sort of grey-green thing that is so... Can make all that noise. It's so nondescript, Mm. but it's making so much noise. Where's Long Island? It's down on the riverside. There's a section on the riverside of the garden where they've restored it back to natural habitat pre-white settlement. Ah, Wow. Except for a couple of big, um, huge American trees. But most of it they've restored, and it's really changed the bird life. Oh, nice. So it was a really good thing to do. Obviously, the botanic gardens can't sort of turn into a cranbone because mm. that's not what it is. No. But having one bit where it really encourages. And I've, one day I saw 21 night herons in the gardens. I was so excited. It hasn't happened again. That was just so exciting. Counting away. <laughs> there are a lot of birds in there. Yeah, sure are. So how are the gardens? Looking pretty good, mm-hmm. I reckon. They've enjoyed the rain too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they've put two new bits in. Uh, um, the perennial border, which has been there for yonks, is looking fabulous. It's interesting because they make that for to look at its best in February. And for me in my garden, February is when I never ask anybody around. It's the hardest time. It's dry. It's, it's, everything's looking burnt and limp. 
Except Caryopteris. Except Caryopteris, <laughs> yes, which are looking fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Yes. Aren't they stars? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But the perennial border's looking fabulous. And then there's two new. There's a new arid garden and a new sensory garden. When I say new, they're about three years old mm. now. So they're just old enough to really come into their own. Are people still stealing things from the arid garden? People, yes. Mm. I mean, somebody has, has tried stealing camellias. I mean, you know, because we've got quite a rare camellia collection. I just, you, things that are in the public domain, I mean, mm. they're for everybody. But but somebody, I mean, you heard about the bromeliads. Somebody mm. actually came in dressed in something that looked very like uniforms so that nobody had questioned them and stole the bromeliads. I mean, what bastards. Cheeky. Oh, it's just horrible. Yeah. Horrible. But you there's could... one thing in my garden which Jane said, oh, can I have that gin? And I said, oh, do you really want it? She said, well, I could sell it for $600. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I was around there the other night, uh, it, speaking of things flowering early too, um, Virginia's got a Brunswickia Josephine in full flower, not just in – like my first one is just coming up and the head's not even spread yet. Um, so this is the one of the biggest of the Amarilla Daisy family that comes from South Africa. Huge bulb, sort of flowering sizes, about the size of a Sharon football. Um, and a few couple of years ago, we were walking around Virginia's garden and um, she said, oh, I'm going to clean away from under there. And I said, yeah, you are. Because I could see the bulb because it, like a belladonna or a Noreen, the, the neck of the bulb is exposed. Um, and you could see it and... So when it flowered last year for the first time, was it? Yes. Um, we were all excited. So if you plant anything back next to that gin. <laughs> no, <laughs> I've cleaned out everything around it. So but if anyone wants to look it up, um, candelabra lily, common name as well. So it's this amazing um, big red head of um, these beautiful reflex red florets on the end of um, pedestals. It looks like a upside down umbrella kind of appearance and... Um, yeah, native to the veld in South Africa where it sort of um, acts a bit like tumbleweed when it's when it's set seed and it just sort of tumbles along. and must be absolutely extraordinary in the wild. Oh, yeah. Yeah, can you imagine? And it takes sort of 18 years from seed to flowering. So, oh, my goodness. Um, <clears throat> be patient if you <laughs> ever, ever get one. Not a plant for me then. Um, but, it, you know, and after it finishes flowering, like naked ladies and things, it has this amazing foliage during the winter, these um, big strappy glaucus leaves and things so it's not just that it flowers for a little time you get you get the leaves during the winter which look good in that spot too Jen. Mm. So. more like hamanthus aren't yeah, they? yeah 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 so the hamanthus which are the paintbrush lilies if people know it looks like a um it's got red bracts with all these little yellow anthers in the middle so it looks a bit like a paintbrush and that has two big strappy leaves that lay along the ground and, the, the, and the flower tends to come before the leaves yeah. so it's really quite and yeah. Um, both Jane and Jane was giving a talk yesterday at Fernie Creek, and somebody had some hamanthus there that were were used to the big red ones. There was pink. Mm. There was a pink one and a little um, off white yeah. one. Gorgeous. They were just gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, so they're a- in the hamanthus humulus rather than so the red one that we're talking about is hamanthus coccinius, um, and the sort of pinky ones are um, humulus, and there's sort of. Vahersutus, which means it's got really hairy leaves and stuff. They're pretty cool. Um, all that South African Amarilla Daisy stuff is amazing, um, particularly that it sort of flowers from now and through into the autumn and stuff. So, yeah. I'm just proud of yours, Chinny. It was very good the other <laughs> night. Mm. 
And thank you for coming yesterday to listen to me. It was fantastic. <laughs> Spewing, I couldn't get there, actually. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to go to our first caller, Karen. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. Thanks I for hanging on. That's okay. I have an absolute infestation like I've never had before of harlequin bugs. And I'm talking thousands, and I've only got a very small Westwood Grey garden. And the birds don't eat them, and I don't want to obviously spray them. I have fun squashing them, um, but I'm talking thousands of them. I've noticed they're just beginning to appear in my garden. I mean, they do come in force when they come. I've never found them that problematic. Well, what do they do? Um, uh, they're getting into all my fruit. Right. Obviously, you don't have them. I no. oh, clearly, I'm the only person here who has this problem. We, we've had them one year, but they actually didn't do anything. They just sort of hung around on the plants for a couple of weeks and then disappeared. They don't. Uh, that I have found. I, I got an awful lot of them during the drought, so they obviously like the heat, and they would just tend to disappear. Well, I've never like like the salvia, the small lot of salvia at the front. They're on every yeah to the purple of salvia and I can flick them off on the ground and maybe in each flick off of the salvia I probably stomp about, I don't know, 20. Wow. Mm. I, th I think that's pretty much going to be your main plan of attack other than getting a bucket of soapy water and shaking them into that and letting them drown. Or something organic like a white oil might help in the fact that it sort of might make surfaces mm. a bit more slippery and things like that but... But um, you don't want mm. to use that when it's hot, and mm. today is no, going to be yeah, not today. boiling. Not today. Yeah, yeah, tricky yeah, one. Yeah, just um, yeah. As I said, never, never had it before. Not like this. I mean, you don't mind. I don't mind a few of them, but not the infestation that it is. So yeah, very curious. Obviously, conditions have been just right for it. Just right for the breeding. I will. I will have a it. ring around and a look up and see if I can find some more information on it and talk and okay. send it into the show for next week because I think Good that's on it's an interesting one, Harlequin buds. Because we need to ask our listeners, somebody who's into insects, to ring in and tell us, or otherwise we'll see, see if we can find some information for next week. So what Great. what Thanks fruit so is it getting into, Karen? Um, a persimmon. Oh my, no. Um, my uh, what else have I got there? Uh, the apricots. It's getting into my veggies at the front. So all, all in my silver beet, in my... Um, yeah, just crawling all over everything and eating things and getting into it. Like one persimmon, when I got it off the tree, like it exploded with them in my hand. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that's terrible. That, that is an infestation. I have I've trouble no, with my dogs no eating the persimmon. My dog well, loves love the, the persimmon. Dog eat the, the bloody harlequins <laughs> that I'm fighting a losing battle with. Anyway, thanks, guys. All right. Have, haven't been much help, but we'll, we'll, we'll do a little Stay bit tuned. more research yeah. and, and, and see what we can come up with, Karen. Thanks very much. All see right. Ya. Take Bye. care. Bye. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm A.B. Bishop, and in the studio with me is Virginia Haywood, Craig Wilson, and Jane Tonkin. I guess I should quickly get to some community announcements. Uh, today, there are three open gardens uh, out sort of Moralbark Way, and they're um, edible-type gardens, produce gardens. There's Buttonshaw Farm at 27 Heathfield Grove in Montrose. There's the Haven at One Haven Court in Moralbark, 
and there's the Aussie Veggie Patch at 49 Lancaster Road, Moralbark. Uh, so if you hop onto the Open Gardens Victoria website and uh, you'll be able to get more details there. All of them. I will be at one of them today, which given it's going to be 38 degrees, I don't want to be, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, they've, they're all really interesting for people into growing vegetables, but it is absolutely essential you don't try and park too nearby because you won't be able to. Yep. So it's a matter of park and walk. Which one are you at? I'm at Buttonshaw. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the only one of them I haven't seen, so that'll be interesting. Oh, and one of the other ones that I did visit, it's um, a rental and, we, and, and she has just created a small but really interesting growing. She's got chooks and with the thought that it's a rental and she might have to move, so, yeah. which makes it really interesting, I think. Fantastic. But as I said, 38 degrees is not, not the best thing for an open garden day. No. Have so you got th- your big hat, Jen? Yes. Good. And bottle of uh, icy water. Keep you cool. Yes, yes, I didn't do that. I should go home and do that before yes, I go. Yes, absolutely. Water. That always all helps. Also, Open Gardens Victoria, they have an online class with Jack Semler, who we know and love from her Superbloom books. The masterclass is online Thursday the 8th of February from 7.30 till 8.30pm and it's $50. So again, you can hop onto the Open Gardens Victoria website for that. We have the Friends of Burnley Gardens have got Valentine's Day with Stephen Wells. So everybody would love to have Valentine's Day with Stephen Wells. He's such a lovely, lovely man. And he is talking about gardens and nature connections in healthcare and the ongoing experiences at Austin Health. This is at 5.30pm on Wednesday the 14th of Feb. Stephen, as we know, works as a nurse, horticultural therapist and gardens and grounds coordinator at Austin Health. And he'll share about how he's incorporated his roles and experiences over the past 25 years at Austin Health into providing meaningful and purposeful connections with gardens for the benefits to patients, visitors and staff. So it's 5.30pm. It's a buffet dinner under the Wisteria Walk, which includes bubbly wine or punch. The talk is from 7.30 and um, I better say where it is. It's at the Burnley campus, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond. Members 35, non-members 45, or the talk is $10 for members and $20 for non-members. So you can hop onto the Friends of Burnley Gardens site to find out more information there. The Daily Society of Victoria have got their state show coming up on the 24th and 25th of February at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, which is 47 Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Admission is $5, concession is $2. Uh, There's lots of dahlia competitions, dahlia displays, potted dahlias for sale, flowers for sale. There's a photography competition and demonstrations. So that's the Dahlia Society of Victoria. And then just a quick rundown of things that are coming up in the next couple of months. There's the Whittlesea Show. Did we work out what date that was, Virginia? The, uh, the second and third of the third. Okay, so a while to go. Yep, and we'll read out more information as we get closer to these. Um, the Rare Plant Fair Broughton Hall. That's in Gippsland. In Gindivik. Yeah. Ah, Gindivik. Okay, and it's good. only one day. The 13th of April. And it's a very beautiful mm-hmm. garden. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
the Yarra Valley Plant Fair, 20th to 21st of April, the Autumn Flower Show at Fernie Creek, 27th to 28th of April, um, but also the Fernie Creek Plant Collectors Fair from the 9th to 10th of March. And, and something exciting about that, yes. Um, the fabulous secretary from Fernie Creek Court Society, Emma Moisey, has given us um, 10 double passes altogether to go to that fair on but it's for the sunday only that the passes are valid so that would be on the 10th of march mm -hmm. now we're giving away two double passes today yeah and then two each weekend as a lead up to oh. it so if anyone wants to ring in and grab a double pass to that um we have two to give away today I'll um, just read out the number. So it's yep. 94190155. Yep. So the Plant Collectors Expo is on the 9th and 10th of March um, up at Fernie Creek, which is Hilton Road in uh, Sassafras. Um, so lots of rare plants. Um, there will be speakers and stuff on both days as well. So there's a speaker's tent this year, um, which will include, like, um, I'm thinking, Meryl Johnson oh, from Seeds yep. um Ben Brooker from mm -hmm. um, Church of Perennials, um, and there's a gentleman coming down from New South Wales. Um, he and a couple of his mates run a business called Andy's Rare Plants, and they're probably the biggest grower of all that Amarilla Daisy yummy stuff that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. So they're loading up a truck and coming down for the first time. So that's a big thing for Victoria, having these sort of things available, and Colin will be giving a talk as well. So, and there's um, over 30 stalls. Yeah. So it's going to be good. Yep. Pretty full on mm. and beautiful setting yep. as well. And at Finney Creek they have, um, as I mentioned earlier, Jane gave a talk yesterday and next next Saturday at 2 o'clock, Ben's giving a talk, Regenerative Horticulture and Trace Elements. So that'll be fascinating. So that's also at Finney Creek next Saturday. 2 p.m. 100 Hilton Road. And you don't have to be a member to come. No, either, all all so. are welcome mm. to that. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sure that will be uh, very well received. Ben's so interesting. I know. Mm. I know his his talks around nutrition, etc. Um, actually, Loretta Childs and I were chatting about it. We were wandering around her garden. We're like, she's had one of her uh, brachychiton repestruses struggling. She put in three, and one's you know not doing as well as the others and we're like oh, i really need to get ben out here <laughs> they're like boron just put boron on it <laughs> two out of three is not too bad no it's not and it's it's hanging in it, it'll it'll take but it's yeah. yeah i've got one too and it's not very happy that it's been so wet this year i mean it is a desert plant after all yeah yeah all right one more quick announcement um for sunday 3rd of march it's the summer heritage fruit tree festival at werribee park farm so if people are interested in that you can hop online there's tree sales and um, talks and tours and all those things so okay that's all of the announcements done for now um, Craig how's your woodland garden doing in this weird summer beautiful beautiful yeah 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 Thriving? it's been a fantastic year yep. for the garden yeah so it's, it's flourishing and moving into autumn mode which is fantastic too I love the autumn some nice stable weather yeah, what's what's really sort of popping at the moment? Oh, probably perennial flocks. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, late oh, that's summer. That's the one that you brought they, in. Yeah, they are. So pretty. Yeah, but also so beautifully perfumed. Yeah, um, I have a couple here, but this is probably the standout, which is called Blue Paradise. The thing I love about flocks is that they are a different colour depending on the light. 
so the blue paradise in, in the in the middle of the day it's sort of a soft pink but in the evening it turns blue oh my goodness wow. that's it's, insane it's, yeah yeah and they, they don't see them around very much anymore. You often see the the alpine flocks, the little low spreading ones, but the big border flocks, not not so much growing these days. And, and I know that they do well in Melbourne gardens because I've seen them growing there. How tall are they? Oh, this one would be 1.5. Mm-hmm. There's another one here, Robert Poor, that would be 1.8. Wow. So they vary. The white one's the tallest, probably up to two metres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can smell it. From and, here. Yeah. and what's their sort smell? of growth cycle like? What do you what do you do with them? They go down in the winter. Mm-hmm. They start emerging in the spring, and they flower late summer, mid to late summer, into and into autumn. Do you have to hack them back? You do, but yeah, yeah. just like a salvia. Yeah, just thing. like any sort of perennial. Yeah. Otherwise, you just have the bare stems there in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. But they're also a good thing to plant where your daffodils and things are because they're there. They come up after all those things mm-hmm. and um so are, are they sort of mostly in that color range of the mauves and pinks that's white, right that sort of and thing? white yeah the white one's probably the strongest one look they're not plants for gardeners so they're not plant and walk away plants they you know they need a little bit of attention in terms of feeding and sometimes staking but they're well worth growing yeah this one is um satin veil which is depending on your your, your color ch- palette. palette. Yeah, either pink or mauve with a white center. It's pink. It's pink. Oh, no, yeah. it's mauve. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> your shirt's pink, Virginia. Yeah, that's um, I'm not used to seeing flocks with such um, big heads on them. Um, maybe it's just the way Craig feeds things too. But yeah. um, that the blue one that he's, he's holding up is almost the size of like a, a small hydrangea flower. Like it's it's not small for a flock. So you're getting a lot of punch of flower in one stem. It's great. These are the little ones that fell over. I <laughs> see now he's bragging. Yeah. Yeah. No, really? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the little ones that, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to cut the great big tall the stems. Ones. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> They're too valuable. And, of course, the perfume is sublime. Yeah. yeah. So you don't cut them and bring them inside? No, I like them where they are. Yeah. yeah. Do you cut any of your flowers and bring them inside? Oh, occasionally. Yeah. yeah. A few don't, lilies. Don't you feel sorry for them? I always feel sorry for cut flowers. I sort of <laughs> like them in the garden. I, I mean, I yeah. do cut hydrangeas yep. because there's so many of them. Yeah. But that would probably be it, I think. Mm. Yes, I don't. And I've got one particular friend who every time she comes up, the first thing she does is get out the secateurs and goes and gets a, a bunch <laughs> get for inside. Bunch. Oh, for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I don't want them inside. I want them outside. Yeah, because you bring them in, they've got lots of critters on them and all of a sudden the critter's are like, hey, what's happening? Where am I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you give them a good shake before you bring them in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just, just one more thing is um, the cyclamen purpurescens which has been flowering for months. Mm. And it's, it's not a commonly seen one, I no, don't think. it's quite rare. Quite yep. rare, yep. in Australia yep. anyway. Yep. And it is beautiful. Beautiful foliage, beautiful sort of kidney-shaped leaves. with, And you can get various leaf-marking forms of it. And, and the flower, I don't know, again, how magenta? would you describe it? Yeah, magenta. Yep. Oh, it's a really deep magenta. Really, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And with perfume, if you can bend down that low. Yeah. <laughs> how tall are the flower stems? Is that how tall they are? That's like it. a couple yeah. of yeah. centimetres? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And are they 
do they present themselves in the middle of the leaf like they do. that? So it's yeah. almost a bit like a, a tiny water lily leaf. Yeah, that would be right. Isn't it? Yeah. And with this beautiful yeah. little magenta dainty thing. And it's, it's the cyclamen that carries through from spring to autumn. When all the others are all the others, they're, and they're all dormant, yeah. it's yeah. flowering. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And if anyone wants to see Cyclamen, going to Craig's is always worthwhile. Mm. Because he Where has is so burning many. yesterday, Craig? We were talking about you. <laughs> and your Cyclamen and stuff. Yeah, yeah well, they're all out on the nature strip yeah. now. Yeah. It yeah. is absolutely gorgeous. Two well things. Well worth a drive. It's well worth mm. going to see just having a look at Craig's garden mm. because it's fabulous. And the perennials out the front there too look mm. Fabulous. It's been so, a good year. Yeah. Is mm. it aconitum finished now that was at the front? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't see anybody else selling aconitum, and I think it's an absolutely wonderful plant. Yeah. And people do mm. tell me, oh, you shouldn't plant that. It's too poisonous. poisonous. So are daffodils. Everything's poisonous. poisonous. Yeah. Exactly. You mm. don't eat Who's things in the garden. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's very much what yeah, I... Unless you have a problem with someone. And <laughs> 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 I'm not eating it. You're... <laughs> <laughs> And, it's a very good cook say, too. and can we just say that Phlox is spelt with a PH, not yep. with an F. If you yep. want to look up the Phlox that Craig's been talking about, it's P-H-L-O-X. And they and do make a really good cut flower too. You have to distinguish between the alpine Phlox, which are completely mm. prostrate, yeah. and the border Phlox. Are these paniculatas? Is that yeah. The, yeah. 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 And, and I'm talking about the big tall border Phlox. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, I'm assuming, are. hopefully, you'll have on your website at some stage. Yeah, they're usually there. Yeah. And we'll put them up on, well, the photos of the flowers yep. up on socials. Mm. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, let me get to some, um, not community announcements, some texts that have come through quickly. Uh, fortunately, I don't have rabbits or deer to contend with, but I saw my first ringtail possum on Monday night in my Lagerstromere in a West Melbourne. So that's, so the possum is obviously going to get a taste for your uh, crepe myrtle. Yep. <laughs> Well, Not I, much you can do about them, really, is there? No, because they're beautiful too. Mm-hmm, they certainly are. I had a I had a baby ringtail living in my garage, and over the winter she just stripped my crumb one one my crab apple. She just stripped the bark off it. She had a really nice feast of crab apple. Well, it was conveniently close to the garage. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And she's gone because when the three dogs arrived, she decided she didn't like them. And I've pruned the crepe myrtle, uh, the crab apple, with an inch of its life, and it's come back nicely. But the only thing to do is to see if you can make your lagostromia difficult to get onto. Yeah, mm. plastic. Um, you can buy plastic sheeting from hardware stores, so that they can't go up the so trunk. They can't go up the trunk. And then yeah. make sure that it's not touching another tree. Yeah. that you can't, can't travel between across. trees. Yeah. And they're, they're they're creatures of habit. So if you do break the path in then they generally won't come back again. Yeah. They'll just go to your neighbours. Exactly. (laughs) Um, We have a bit of love for being back on the airwaves. Uh, Loved hearing the selection of repeats, and now it's wonderful to hear you all live again from Susie and uh, Vicky and Peter in Notting Hill. Good morning, team. Welcome back to the airwaves. We're looking forward to some interesting and varied gardening discussions. Well, hopefully you've come to the right place, guys. All right, let's get on to another one. Hi, team. I have two establishing Banksia integrifolia trees that are one and a half metres tall in 25 centimetre pots that I bought from the nursery last year. 
They were staked with cane and almost looked like they had been trained as a standard with no leaves in the lower 50 centimetres of the tree. When I removed the stake to plant it in the ground, the whole tree has bent over with the tip of the tree touching the ground. Gosh. Oh dear. Thoughts from the panel? Chop it back. That's, be, that's what that's I'd it. do. Chop it back. Yep, right. give, it, give it a hard yep, prune and, and, and it'll just come away yep. again like crazy. Yep. Alternatively, you could put in three stakes around it, um, not touching it too much and with a bit of um, pantyhose pantyhose around that just to stabilize it yeah, till stabilize it gets it till it gets its roots happening but my but issue with staking like that is you're kind of perpetuating the problem not really because it, you're not i mean it'll still wobble a bit so mm -hmm. it'll start developing those roots yeah and i personally wouldn't keep it in a pot I don't know what no, you... No, they're going to put it in the ground. Oh, right. That's what they want to do, yes. Or they have put it in the ground. You could do... You could stake one and chop the other one and yep. report, <laughs> and report back. back to us. <laughs> That's yeah. a good plan. Report back what... Um, Isn't it great yeah. we use our listeners to... Yeah. Well, my friend Shirley Khan, who is a fantastic native oh, gardener... Shirley. Shirley used to... When she bought native plants, she, she used to prune all of them before she planted them. Yeah. Absolutely all of them? Pretty much. Well, she did have a fabulous garden. Yeah, she knew what she was doing. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. So it takes a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it? Yeah. You bring it home, it's in flower. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm shocking. The other day, <laughs> these guys came down to my place and some of our um, listeners from America were there. And one of them and Craig just went round <coughs> working out what I needed to be pruned in my garden. Which um, was virtually everything. More accurately, what didn't need to be pruned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, was, what was kind of funny was Craig standing there with his arms crossed going, Virginia, your garden's hungry. I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I never feed. Oh, you don't feed. Oh, well, I mean, but everybody out there that listens to Craig and I know we're feeders, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, that's I mean, right. You know, um, Both but, as people and plants. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did um, a good job of feeding the people. You did. You did. Yeah. And then there was one rose bush of Ginny's that they were looking at and um, deciding where they're going to cut it back to. And I think Craig went sort of six inches off the ground and that was, you know, like nearly four foot of rose bush gone. <laughs> but, um, Peter, yeah, it'll, it'll be okay, Jim. Yeah. Peter Cundall was the one who taught me about pruning mm. roses on Gardening Australia. Mm. Yeah, he was... Uh, brutal. Yeah, brutal. Yep. Yeah. Mm. All right, so hack one yeah. and, and stake, stake one, one and yeah. report back in yeah. a couple of months. Few Banks months. here in yeah. Tegrafolia make fantastic bonsai. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you don't put them in the garden if you're bonsaiing them. No, indeed. No. Yeah. All right, Michael from um, – oh, that might have been Michael from Beckersmarsh. Sorry, here's another one. I have a two-metre Agonis flexuosa with a bad infestation of myrtle rust. Oh, what can be done? Well, first of all, you'd need to establish that it actually is myrtle rust, and if it is myrtle rust, you need to report it. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, there are a lot of fungal conditions that have those similar characteristics. So I'd be... Um, where Where is this well, person? I'm not actually sure if it um, was Bacchus Marsh or if the Bacchus Marsh person related to the Banksy Integrifolia, so um, potentially Bacchus Marsh. It's not surprising given the year we've had. Yeah. But myrtle rust is still a reportable. It is, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, and maybe that's one that um, you could send a photo in. I think to our to our email address that would be really handy, and that's three cr dot gardening at gmail dot com because it would be good to determine if it actually is myrtle rust. Uh, I think one of the key things is to, I guess, not overwater, not knock the plant to spread the spores. But don't you have to get rid of it if it's a myrtle rust? Mm, maybe. I think burn yeah. is the next yeah, step. Yeah, that's what I would have said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's too contagious and it's too dangerous. You have to. I think she has to, or he has to find out immediately if yeah. it's myrtle rust. Yeah. And if it is myrtle rust, it has to be destroyed and not put in composts or let sit around. Mm. Because it's a serious problem. And it's windborne, isn't it? <clears throat> I actually think it's... Um, is it Through soil? Yeah. Okay. Although I'm, not, I'm actually not sure, Craig, mm. so, um, yeah. I'm sure someone will be able to ring in and yeah. tell us. And I would end up, presume, if you um, report it, who would you report it to, AB? There is a, a phytophthora. Um, and that sort of reporting group that you can go to. So, yeah. But I don't think you can be relaxed about myrtle rust. No, no, no. Um, all right, well, Jane's busily... I was going to... Thank you. Um, okay, Craig, any more plants? Oh, yeah, there's one about? I need to <laughs> boast about, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is Rogersia panata. Oh, Rogersia. Wow. Look at the size of the leaf. Yeah. Okay, he's allowed to boast everyone. Yeah, Rogersia right. panata, and then the variety is bronze peacock. Um, where peacock comes from, I have no idea. Oh, the fan of the leaf? Maybe, maybe but it is the most superb plant. Um, it's made an enormous clump. It's, it's a very thirsty perennial. But mm-hmm. It's growing next to a tap. <laughs> the clump would be... 1.5 by 1.5 wow. metres with tons of flowers. So the Rogersia, when it surfaces in the spring, is everything is bronze. The flower buds, the leaves, the whole lot. And then it sends up these big spikes of pink flowers that are electric pink, and now they've aged to a sort of almost reddish pink. Mm. Yeah. It, it's the most superb thing. But it's not a plant that you plant if you live on top of a hill. Wind no, and no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it needs shelter and for moisture. me, it's it's something that you associate with English gardens. They yeah. have beautiful rodgersias, but then they're as wet as all hell. Yeah, it's next to the tap. Mm. Yeah, do you grow it, Jane? Um, I think I, I don't have that one, but I've got a couple of rodgersias that yeah, they need a lot of water. I um had a couple in pots that were looking really sad, of course, mm. because you know getting enough water so i sunk them into the ponds where the iris and satas are and they love it there mm-hmm. um so it, it tends to be a, a, a boggy type of perennial um but i, I think the thing about jerseys is what craig's saying about when it when they first come through those bronze tips and things but it's about the color of the stems too they're all they're red it's not a green stem so you get this red yeah. stem red bracts and then that bright beautiful pink flower that craig was saying um but the foliage is just as good as the flowers as well. Absolutely, um, and, and a yeah. lot of them only have sort of dreary cream flowers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the foliage is superb, and this one's flushed with bronze. Yeah, and the, the leaf that Craig's holding is like 60 centimetres by 60 centimetres. Like it's um, 
pinnate, like it's divided and stuff, but it, yeah, it's, it's hugely for Josia. I'm very proud of you, my friend. And very pleated. <laughs> yeah. And do either of you have it for sale? I do. I don't. That's. I might have to buy one. <laughs> yes, indeed. This one in particular. Yeah. 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 And so that's Rogersia, like in Roger. Yep. Mm. Rogersia, this is Pinata, bronze peacock. You have the most incredible array of plants, Craig. Thank you. We try. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, I'm quite convinced you'll never see a Rogersia at Bunnings. I hope you not. never know. You never know what you're going to find at Bunnings, Bunnings. I'd say. The thing about Bunnings is that each store has their own buyer for plants. So they vary enormously from store to store. I've often wondered why they vary so much. And that's why, yeah. So if you get a good buyer, you can get a decent range get of plants. Get some unusual plants, yeah. yeah. that's right. But, if you know, a lot of them are pretty pedestrian. Mm. Well, I've been watching because sometimes you see them with Cleome, which I find a difficult plant to find. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't found them this year, not that I've been for a while. I only go to Bunnings to have a little walk around their nursery. Mm. I do. It's one of the few shops I'm excited by is Bunnings. I don't go to many shops. <laughs> I don't like shopping. But Bunnings, because of the... And also the tools. I like to look at the tools. The tools are dreadful. <laughs> no, some of them are all right. <laughs> buy them online, tools. <laughs> you buy Japanese tools. Yes. You buy the seriously or good German. tools. Mm. One or the other. All right, I'm getting back to Myrtle Ross for a second. And uh, our producer has sent through a couple of bits of information spread by wind, water and animals. Uh, destroy destroy the plant. But if um, you can hop onto the agriculture Vic, agriculture.vic.gov.au website and there's more information there in terms of actually identifying it. It's been uh, found, or it was found in Victoria for the first time in 2011, and it's in um, it's been found in Shepparton, Ballarat, parts of Shire of Cardinia, East Gippsland. Uh, so it is definitely something that you want to ID positively, um, or hopefully and, negatively. Or hope, mm-hmm. or, yeah, exactly, hopefully negatively. So the yeah, agriculture.vic.gov.au. Hop on there and um, yeah. But myrtle rust aside, if if you have a plant which is subjected to fungal attacks, you have to question as to whether it's worth growing or not. Yeah, but I mean, as you say, it has been an exceptional summer. It has been an exceptional summer. On that theory, I'd get rid of all my roses because it's been so wet, they've all got fungal problems. problems. They look terrible. You need to uh, grow the Brindabella roses, which have been bred up in Queensland against all the fungal conditions. True. They're doing some amazing stuff up in Queensland with roses. Yes, Just, well, that's interesting. Yeah, breeding them. Have you recently done a story on such? Uh, we, we we sort of do from time to time, and, yeah, we've got a rose story coming up in the magazine, and uh, there's also a section on Aussie rose breeders, and Steve Falcioni has written the story, and, uh, yeah, we're trying to get a sort of snapshot of what's going on around the country in terms of rose breeding. Are they nice colours? It's interesting. The Brindabella roses, they're some what I would consider extremely gaudy, like striped roses, which aren't my thing. But then he also has some really um, recently, I think there was one, I think it's called Brindabella Prince or something, and it's extremely deep uh, burgundy and almost velvet looking. It's quite divine. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, all bred to be the... 
you know, disease resistant for all those horrible fungal diseases up there. So it's not, they're not being bred for inland Queensland, they're being no, no. bred for coastal. Yeah, for, for humid conditions. So strong coast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so you need the stripy ones. You oh, do. yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, everyone's got their own taste, don't they? Absolutely. In terms of- yeah. But also, one of the things that I had to learn again when I came back after being away 20 years was that the light makes a huge difference to your garden and the light in Australia is so much stronger than what you have in England that you just grow different things. Like the white garden in England is a really beautiful thing and it, a white garden in summer here just looks like nothing. Mm. It's just not strong enough to stand up to our light and that's why we can grow all those reds and oranges and strong colours so easily. And I suppose it's even brighter up in Queensland so they can carry stripes. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you present them, doesn't it? Like sometimes if you see an entire rose bed filled with a mix of colours, that sort of bothers my eyes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you need colour control mm, with roses. Mm, mm. I, don't, I don't just like a... Um, I don't want orange, purple, pink, white all mixed up together. I just want two colours in one place. Yeah, it's, it's nice to have... A thought gone into the design as well you know not just presenting the plant for the plant's sake I think some people get into sort of plant collecting rather than what actually goes in the garden and there's a lot to be said for plant. growing plants that flourish in your climate yeah there is mm-hmm. although a lot of people completely they're, they're driven by trying to grow things that are really hard to grow in their climate by creating another climate. I mean, when when I go back to England, you know, they're all so excited about being able to grow agapanthus. You can imagine how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, some of the inner pertus agapanthus are yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I have a double one flowering on my nature strip at the moment, which is fantastic. It's a double inner pertus. It's a double agapanthus. No, it's not inner pertus. Oh, just a double agate. Yeah, and it's really good. No, no seeds. Yep. I have a couple in the garden. I have Inapertus and I have Snowflake, which is a little white one, which is also sterile. Yeah, snow, Snowflake's beautiful. It's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm busy digging mine out, but I don't know why. My neighbours just planted 50 down the road. Can you believe it? And I, can't un- I don't understand why the council hasn't come in and said, don't do that, mm. because they're a weed. Mm. So it's out on the nature strip that they've planted. Yeah. Them. Oh, okay. But there are weeds in every genus. Absolutely. Yeah, or most genus. And there are good plants where people think there are only weeds. That's right. Yes. I mean, you have to be careful about these things. Mm-hmm. And there are some lovely agapanthus. Yes, but mine are, mine are weedy. weedy. Yeah. yeah. And so they get, and I find them incredibly diff- They were there when I came. I, I didn't plant them. And I find them incredibly difficult. They've been there more than 16 years. It's very hard to get them out. It's not mm. easy to dig them out. No. Yeah. I'm a, a touch old for that one. Yeah. I think that's for somebody yeah, else to do. Well, you need a machine. But, I mean, if they're in the middle of a bed, yes. what are you going to do? I dig them. I, I find a man yeah. uh, or a young woman who's really strong and has got enough drive to do it because if you feel wimpish, you won't get them out. No. Are they through the beds? Uh, in there, they tend to be in the really difficult bits mm-hmm. under the candle bark, which is you know a hundred foot high. They, okay. They've they've been tricky soil. They've been planted in the difficult spots, and then there's the weedy ones that have just popped up. But I'm gr- I'm just going to gradually 
get most of them out. They're at least sort of soft. Oh, but look, in the middle of a really, really hot day, to see the white and the blue of the, of the agapanthus is just fantastic. I mean... Oh, they're a beautiful plant. Yes, and, it's and, just that they don't... One of the reasons they are beautiful is because they're so tough. Mm. But Yes. They, so at the moment, they're flowering all over the nature strip with my five ears. Oh, that'd be beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's Nothing. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, weeds. So but you cool. need to be know that what you've got is, is sterile. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, when I went to South Africa, when I walked around um, the botanic gardens in Cape Town, you know, they referred to Australian plants as aliens because they have exactly the same problem. Mm -hmm. And they they weren't at all happy about aliens. I bet they have the problems. (laughs) You can imagine the Australians would go ballistic there or some of them. Yeah, wattles, for example. Mm. Yeah, they're a real problem. And hakea. All right, this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm A.B. Bishop. I'm in the studio with Jane Tonkin, Craig Wilson and Virginia Haywood. Did you bring anything in, Jane? No. Besides your pretty <laughs> self? <laughs> How's your garden going? Fairing. Um, uh, look, a lot of the woodland things that flower through the summer love the cooler climate that we've had, which is great. And it's saving my dam water quite a bit with the amount of rain that we have had so um that makes my life slightly easier as well um but yeah everything's sort of lilliums have been a bit of an issue this year with the fungal sort of problems that we're all talking about um i think lilliums is one of those things that you need like if you've got a clump you need the next clump to be quite a distance away so that there's airflow and things because they're susceptible to botrytis and things like that and when it's a bit sort of humid and um, that over the summer it tends to go a little bit rife, so the lilies have suffered a little bit. I mean, the bowls will be okay, but it just doesn't look as great as what they, they could be. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I've bought in... I've actually bought some bulbs because yeah. no one can see the flowers anyway, no. so I've I bought bulbs in to talk about because yesterday, as we heard, I did a little talk up at Ferny Creek... Um, but when the Gardening Australian magazine came out in January, so it's not the current, I assume February's out now, isn't it? It is. Yep. So if anyone's got the old January one, have a flick through to the marketplace. Um, there's a couple of amazing Californian bulbs um, and corms in that issue that you can buy now. And one of those is um, a thing called Dicalostema, mm-hmm. um, otherwise known as the Californian firecracker. And it has a little corm, which I'm going to show my darling friends in here. Um, and that's a flowering size corm, and it's about the size of a 10 cent piece, basically. Um, Amazing flower for such a yeah. small corm. So it gets to about 60 centimetres tall with this um, umbel of red florets that are tipped lime green with a little white centre, um, hence looks a bit like a firecracker. And it flowers from about mid-December through to the middle of January. Um, so, And it flowers over a long period of time for a bulb. Um, great for a well-drained, sort of sunny spot in the garden. Mm-hmm. And it's at that time where all your spring flowering stuff is finished. And so you've got the benefit of colour still going through into the garden, which I, th- I think is great. There's not a lot of um, summer flowering bulbous things um, that the the amaryllids we were talking about are more sort of into um, autumn, whereas these summer flowering things, I think, are underutilised in gardens and stuff. So 
Um, Californian firecracker is one that you should have a look at, I think. Mm. Well, we've got a story coming up in the March issue on bulbs, and this year we wanted to do a slightly different take on bulbs rather than the usual hybrid tulips and, and daffodils and things. And, of course, they still get a, a mention, but we've... Um, included some really unusual things and in the story uh, Jane was one of the people I interviewed so I interviewed a few people from around the country just to get different takes on it so Lynn in Western Australia from Tulips with a Difference had a lovely chat with her uh, spoke with a young woman in uh, Coranda in um, far north Queensland mm -hmm. and what she's growing there in her amazing tropical garden and uh, yeah various other people just to get a really good take on some of those different bulbs and, and sort of realise I think and for me um, it was just that realisation that there's not only the spring bulbs, there's the summer flowering ones and the autumn, autumn flowering, flowering ones. And winter and, flowering. Yeah, and winter. So, there's, I mean, you could literally have a garden of bulbs that's in flower year round. Yeah, and I think that's the, the magical thing about it. Like everybody knows that, say, with a, with a daffodil, you put it in and just leave it. Um, you might have to scrape away some dead foliage if it's a bit offensive to you. Um, there's sort of none of this pruning and maintaining of roses and selvias and things like that that um, also have a great aspect in the garden and stuff too but if you can plant bulbs interspersed in, in amongst all these perennials and things that do their own thing yeah. um, I think a lot of people get a, a good surprise especially in autumn when they pop up without foliage and stuff Yeah. Um, I think bulbs are a great way to go Yeah. and, and you, we also talked about species tulips mm -hmm and how they're pretty much the only tulip that you can leave in the ground mm -hmm. and they just do their own thing. Yep. And they're beautiful. They're so different, aren't mm. they? They're, they're wonderful. And I think the other thing too, during the drought, planting winter, planting things that were dormant in summer meant that you still had that time in February where everything was horrible, but you had all these things underground that were living without having to be watered all the time. Mm-hmm which was fabulous in the drought when we didn't have any water anyway. Yeah. And yesterday we were talking about um, it, how things, uh, like a lot of the, the things I was talking about yesterday were from California, which has that sort of Mediterranean type of um, Dry climate, which, climate. Is, mm. which is very, very similar to what we have. Um, so that's why I was sort of adapting these sort of things to our, our gardening and, and things. And um, I, I just think that if we look at, um, where things come from and then we sort of started looking at the depth of bulbs and then Craig got mentioned again um, <laughs> and because of soil temperatures and things like that like it, it, things do better in the ground than they do in a pot mm -hmm. normally yeah. um, because you can adjust the depth and stuff like I, I mentioned yesterday that if you, you dig a little bit of a hole and, and gradually go down and feel the difference in the soil temperature like even on a day like today when, it, when it's going to be 38 or whatever um, the first sort of inch of soil will be very, very warm, but the the more you get down to sort of six inches deep, it, it's quite cool, mm. and it maintains those temperatures, which is great for bulbs rather than a pot where it's hot then cold, a, yeah, a, hot a, then cold, a and black pot which just yeah. absorbs the heat. Mm. Yeah, I think it takes considerable skill to grow bulbs in pots. Yeah, thanks. So beyond <laughs> one year. <laughs> beyond one year. Yeah. 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 Well, they naturally like to be in the ground. I mean, we, AB mentioned species tulips. Like in the ground, they will um, they put down what you call in the trade a dropper. So you've got your main tulip bulb and then the baby goes 
deeper. So there's this long tendril down. And I remember as a kid, you know, digging bowls out the paddock on your hands and knees. And um, Dad would be going, go deeper, go deeper. And, you know, you'd find tulips sort of um, a foot and a half deep. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're, they've settled at their where they're comfortable and things so that's the advantage of putting bulbs in the garden too is that they will do their thing um so maybe as as the soil sort of temperatures get warmer we might have to start planting our bulbs a little bit deeper too so i also noticed that you have enough chorangoshoma to cut some i do yeah (laughs) um jane can we come back yes you you? can yeah thank you all right let's uh quickly go to rain no the rain is not there Okay, continue. So, um, yeah, so Craig's just pointed out, I've got a beautiful um, perennial, almost shrub, isn't it? But it doesn't quite get that big. Perennial plant, it's called Coringoshoma palmata. It's from um, China and Japan, and there is one species that's from Korea. Um, it has these beautiful palmate leaves, very much like um, the dreaded sycamore, I'm going to say, but the, the leaves are absolutely beautiful. And then um, on top of that is this branching head of um, deep golden yellow bells that um, look very waxy. Everybody that sort of looks at my Karingashoma has to have a play with the bells to make sure that it's real. Um, But it's one of these perennials that needs really deep shade. Mm -hmm. So it will burn very, very easily. Like we've put a second um, shade cloth skin on my woodland house this year because uh, last year the Karingashome just burnt so they didn't flower. Um, but it, it is it is rare um, but easy to grow if you have a nice moist humus rich soil so that yummy leaf mouldy sort of things that I talk about all the time you know when you dig under an oak tree and grab a handful and smell it um, that's the kind of soil it needs but acidic it doesn't like lime at all so um, Can you say its name slowly? Karingashoma palmata, K-I-R-E-N-G-E-S-H-O-M-A, and then palmata, P-A-L-M-A-T-A. Um, but it's it's an amazing thing, but it does need shade to, to thrive and moisture. And moisture. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have it in your garden, Craig? I do. Looks, looks beautiful. Oh, yeah. and for, for full shade, what yeah. a beautiful yeah. plant that would be. Coriana is a bit of a non-event, I think. Yeah, I've got Coriana to the stage where it's nearly, um, oh, probably 80 centimetres tall now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a very, very small plant when I first got it. So Coriana is the other, so it's Coringoshoma Coriana is the other species. And the only difference is that it's slightly paler um, in colour. It's more of a lemon yellow i think than yeah. uh and the leaf is slightly more serrated and silvery and sheen much to smaller it. yeah um but this the palmata uh, i've got to a meter and a half tall now so um it needs quite a bit of space as well mm-hmm. but dormant over the winter too it's herbaceous so then it, it's one of those perennials that slowly builds yeah yeah so when you put it in it takes a few years before you get it up to the height and yep. size that you really want mm. yeah. and left better sort of undisturbed to do do its mm-hmm. thing but you I mean you can dig and divide it um it has a sort of set of eyes on the top of it and it, it's a little bit scary when you sort of put the knife or the secateurs into dividing it mm. but um but well worth a try for someone that's interested in woodlanders and something different mm. i went to a garden in yonkers which is one of the new york boroughs mm-hmm. 
um, onto my garden and there was a vast clump of Chiringa Shoma growing next to a pond. When I say vast, you know, it was six metres by six metres. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. And did you see it in flower? Yes. How exciting. Yeah, it was just coming into flower. Yeah, but if you, I mean, if you have got a, an area that's sort of full shade with a pond, it will tolerate alongside it too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other um, sort of, you know, you can get into your Insata iris and things, the water iris and stuff for your ponds. And and Rogersia. And Rogersia. <laughs> and, We're um, going to have to have a big pond at this stage. Primulas, candelabra primulas put with it as well. We could design a pond, couldn't we? We could, yeah. with hostas as well. Oh, yeah. Sounds beautiful. All right, I'm going to go to a... Um, we're having some trouble with the phone line, so apologies if you're calling in and um, you can't get through. Uh, Rosie is one of these people. Uh, she says, hi all, lovely to have you back. I've tried to call with a question for Craig. Lines keep cutting out. I absolutely love his plants. I have a witch hazel that I bought from him two years ago and it is in a shady spot with only morning sun in Mount Eliza. Unfortunately, the one over 30 degree day in November burnt it badly so all the new growth was crisped and I have no had no new leaves since then. I'm keeping it moist but should I move it into an even shadier spot or will it cope better when it's older? It's a metre tall. That's rosy in Mount Eliza. It's odd that I would have sold a witch hazel to someone in Mount Eliza. I would never, ever recommend witch hazel for someone on Mount Eliza. Maybe she snuck it out of the nursery. It may be that she didn't tell me where she was from or because they will just hate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So more shade? No, I just don't think it'll work. Because it's not just the shade, it's also the heat. Mm. Yeah. And um, I'm pretty good like that. You know, I usually <coughs> tell people... Yeah. I'm always trying to buy things from Craig, and he says, no, no, Jim, can't have yeah. that. He puts himself out of business. Yeah. Well, that's okay. That's no, I mean, called yeah. honesty, yeah. people. Yeah, that's right. You want your plants to thrive. You want your plants yeah. to flourish, so yeah. they come back and buy more. Yeah. And witch hazel won't in Mount Eliza. So maybe, Rosie, you have to give it away. Yeah. In winter. Hmm. That's a, that's a shame. But as but you were Craig, saying, but Craig grow, will be able to recommend something else yeah. for her to yeah. put in that it's, spot, it's though. It's just, it's, it will be a downhill battle. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be sad forever. Yeah. Rosie, give uh, Craig a ring and have a chat yeah. to him about something that would be lovely for you mm. down there. Can you think of anything that would be a nice replacement? Um, Phimosia umbellata. Mm-hmm. It's in the... In the um, it's another Mul- P- Mulvaceae. Another pH plant. Yeah, Mulvaceae. So it's with hibiscus mallow, and yeah. a butyl on. It's mm. a mallow. Yeah, yeah, it has beautiful deep pink flowers. Late late summer, right through winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds nice. It's a good plant. And it it also wants some afternoon shade. Yeah. Doesn't which, like too much heat. Which I didn't give it. I've I've got it growing in full sun facing north and west, and it's surviving quite well at the moment. Look, I, I gave a plant to a friend of mine in Hawthorne where she planted it facing west up against a melaleuca. Wow. Yeah, and it's flourishing. That's tough. Yeah. Mm. Rosie just texted in to say she was in Blackburn when she got it from you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even Blackburn would be a struggle, I would have thought. 
It is something that I used to grow in London all the time. Anything that I grow in London, the only thing I grew in London that grows easily here is syringia. Yeah. Everything else I grew, I struggle with. Hmm. Jane, are belladonnas poisonous? Yes. All of them? I mean, as in all parts of them? Yes. Okay. Someone's uh, <laughs> moved into a house and they've got belladonna lilies. But only... Uh, are they poisonous to the touch? No. If you break the break the stem, the sap can sometimes give people a rash. Yep. Um, but no, it, like they, they pick them as a cut flower. Okay. You know, yep. so th- they're not going to harm them. But please don't stew it up in replacement of an onion. But the poison thing with plants. Mm. I mean, so many plants are poisonous. So many plants yeah. are poisonous, yeah. and the, the odds of you yeah. eating them are zero. Yeah. yeah but no, they they can touch every part of the plant without. Yeah. Any problem. Okay. Yeah. But if you're cutting them to bring them indoors, wear Just, gloves. Yeah. Yep. I think roost is probably an exception in that you can get big welts on your skin from handling it. Mm-hmm. But both, both Stephen and I grow roosts and neither of us have had any problems yeah. with them. Yeah. I mean, you know, I am covered in red welts from mosquitoes. Now, normally a mosquito bite, bites me and I don't have any real reaction. Our bodies are weird sometimes. When I was at Burnley, we were told under no circumstance ever to plant Rus in some... That's R-H-U-S for anyone who wants to look it up. Never planted in a client's garden. And then Stephen gave me one, so I planted it in mine. <laughs> and I prune it and do all sorts of things to it, dig it up and move it, and I've had no problem from it at all. I pruned one as a child and was in, like, hives all over my body. Right. But since then, nothing... And also, there are different roosts. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe the one Stephen gave me isn't as poisonous as some of the others. But I mean, the other belladonna thing, is not a... Yeah, I don't see that as a problem. No, the other thing is, you know, people have food allergies and so people react differently to handling plants and stuff. You know, the, um, my mum's actually allergic to arum bulbs, so the arakei family. Um, they give her a rash and sort of round her fingernails so it gets all sort of a bit red and yucky so uh it depends on who you are whereas i can handle arakei bulbs no problem at all so um but i rest assured to that person your belladonnas are fine yeah okay goody uh someone has texted in looking for advice on when best to propagate some of the south african proteaceae protea leucospermum leucodendron autumn semi-hardwood don't know. I would have thought, I mean, if in doubt, semi-hardwood yeah. cuttings yeah. in summer. Yes, I'd it's, do it, I'd do it now. Especially at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, mm. okay. But that, that's only a guess because I, I don't know. I've never, mm. never tried to propagate them. But I've propagated, I haven't propagated them, but I've propagated a whole lot of, you know, as a very amateur, unlike these guys, I'm strictly amateur. And I've found that I've got a whole lot of things that I've just stuck in that are coming up. I think this is a good year for it because we haven't had too much heat. I mean, no, it's it's the reason it's a good year is that we had that warmth in the spring. We had two weeks of warm weather yeah. and we got lots of new growth. Mm. That's why it's a good year. Beautiful new growth for, for taking cuttings from. Waratahs I do relatively soon as the new growth starts to, to harden. Um, it'll look sort of soft and beautiful lush green and stuff on the top of your waratahs and things but wait till that hardens off before you take cuttings off those but but not too hard yeah no it's it's surprising how floppy they can be be. yeah Yeah. 
Rosie has texted in again saying, does anyone want a slightly crispy hamamelis? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Rosie. <laughs> She's going to put in a cottonus. Yeah, good, yeah, good plan. Yeah, yeah. Look, I have one at, at, at the nursery at the moment called um, Young Lady or Jungfrau. It is fantastic. It's not big. Yeah. Gets up to, at the maximum, two metres. Flowers all summer. Colour? Foliage colour? It's plain green, I did. okay, but yeah. autumn colour and and pink flowers. Mm. Wow! Yeah, it's beautiful. Pretty. Okay. Yeah. Well, good on you, Rosie. Yep. So yeah. if anyone wants, sorry, Rosie, to be the bearer of bad news. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere, uh, where where should someone live if they're going to pick up the hammer? Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> right. well, hopefully, we've got some listeners in Sweden. Someone in the Dandenong Ranges, yeah. Macedon Ranges, no, or Sweden. I don't no. think so. No. I don't think so. Oh, sorry, I've, that was me. I've never yeah. seen hamamelis that is bulbing over in Australia. So then it needs to go to our friends from America. Yeah, I think it needs to be much colder than we can give it. Take it back to Minnesota. Yeah, yep. back to yeah. Minnesota. So I'm assuming you... Oh, but you obviously sell them. I have done. Certainly not anymore. Okay. I'll never carry them again. What about in Tassie? Yep, possibly. Yep. Yeah, possibly. And New Zealand? Yep. But, uh, yeah. I mean, Except you won't be able to get them there. Yeah, grow something that flourishes. Yeah. All right. Good on you, Rosie. Now, Jane, now that I'm a bulb expert, mm-hmm. after talking Excellent. to you. Can I go home years, now? You good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I have learnt that some bulbs prefer to be dry mm-hmm. when they're dormant. Mm-hmm. Have you had trouble through our rather wet sort of summer with any of your bulbs? Um, touch would no, mm-hmm, but, but definitely this sort of season can be a, a problem for some of those bulbs that like to be dry over their summer dormancy. So that includes things like fritillarias. Mm-hmm. Um, it includes all the ixias and lacanalias and um, your species tulips and, and things like that. So... Um, I, I think basically with all of those that I've mentioned anyway, they need to be in a well-drained spot. So I, I think they will have survived this summer rain. Um, what you might find is that the root growth is already starting to happen, mm-hmm. which is very, very early. Um, so I, I got into a little bit of a panic because I, I sell a bit of stuff wholesale as well. And so I had some wholesale orders sitting and I thought, oh, it's been raining, they're going to have new roots. And sure enough, some things have started making roots that probably wouldn't normally make roots till about the middle of March. So as much as we think that there's nothing happening with our dormant bulbs, all that action happens from late autumn through winter underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's doing its thing to produce the flowers and stuff in spring. Um, what you can do about it if you're growing things in pots is you always move your pots cool and dry for things that need that dry summer mm-hmm. rest. Um, try not to put sheets of tin or stuff over the top because that's sort of, you don't know that the rats are getting in there and eating your bulbs and things. Just nice, cool and dry for your pots. So you don't water them like no. once a month no, or no. anything like that? You just no. leave them completely? No. Yeah. And having said that, I've got things that like a dry summer rest that are, that are out all summer potted stock because it's only what Mother Nature provides. And on a normal year, 
we generally don't get much rain from Christmas through to the end of January when you get about an inch of rain in Melbourne. That's our sort of traditional thing happening. So it's a, it's a bit of a strange year, this mm. one, but I don't think it's going to be detrimental to anything so far, depending on how hot February gets. Mm-hmm. Because if your pots are already wet now um, and we get days of 38 plus, they tend to steam. And that's another issue that we have with people watering things. We all, we all get up really early to rush off to work and we water pots and then it's 38 degrees and your bulbs are sitting there in, in a nice wet sort of moist conditions and it's 38 degrees mm. and, and that heating up can create fungal problems with bulbs and um, which then, you know, causes rotting and things. So I always say, you know, maybe when you get home from work, if you're not working night shift... Um, grab your glass of wine and your watering can or hose and do it at that time so it's got all of that cool overnight yeah. to um, adjust and things. So, I would anyway, have thought that, that pots, uh, that summer rain is lethal for bulbs and pots. Um, look, it, it can be, but I've I found that most of our stuff, like uh, the daffodils, uh, Kirill's my partner's into um, breeding daffodils and things like that, and all these daffodils have been out all... Um, some are getting all the rain and stuff mm. and, um, you know, I tipped a pot of daffies the other day and it had three inch long roots on it so mm-hmm. it went straight back in the pot. So those sort of things are surviving okay. Um, I mean, I do it on a commercial scale so I lift everything every year out of the pots or polystyrenes and things like that um, and it's stored in the shed so it is getting that long dry summer. But um, I found fritz, for example, the Mediterranean fritz, a wet summer in pots is yep. a disaster. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and yet your UK fritz couldn't ask yeah, for Mel- anything Meliagris likes a, Meliagris a nice likes to be permanently damp, damp. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it likes a, a wet situation. It's probably and I had no idea till yesterday yeah. that you get fritz in California. Yeah, there's about 20 of them endemic to California. So um, so my desire to grow fritz is something I can yeah, rekindle. So, yeah, <laughs> I would I would recommend any of those Californian ones to your garden, Ginny. The, the only thing is that they're not readily available in Australia. Or the, the Mediterranean ones would be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a few of those like Greca and things mm-hmm. like that that um, would do well. But it, it but it's finding that in Australia too. Mm. Um, and fiddle areas can take me seven years from seed to flowers. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to be patient with your friend. <laughs> they're also, um, I think a lot of people plant them in sun and they're perhaps some of them are better in a bit of yeah, shade. Yeah, as, as much as, um, you know, books might say that in the wild, sort of, you know, a lot of fritillarias come from um, through Asia as well and the Mediterranean and Europe um, and as we've discussed, Northern America. Uh, and they'll say they're growing in full sun. Now, their full sun compared to an Australian full sun mm. Um, so we need to sort of have a look at things and, and adjust a little bit. Uh, I grow most of my fritillaria areas with afternoon shade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I found Acmo petala, which is one of the easiest ones yep. to grow, loves a woodland garden. Yep. Yep. And it, it, all it does to it is just stretch it longer. And, That's right. Um, yeah, one of the most impressive fritillarias yeah. um, as well. So that might do all right at, at Ginny's as I well. once it it's would. yeah. yeah. Um, we might have to try that one as a. Because I just mm. adored them when I was a Londoner. Yeah. And of course, stupidly tried to grow them when I came back. You know, I tried to grow handkerchief trees, fritillarias, <laughs> uh, just so many Mark things. Davidia does all right. It's out in full sun. and Yeah. yeah but well, I tried to grow a Davidia young 
in the drought. Yep. Ah. This was foolish. Mm. Mm. Yep. I had a fantastic sell? germination rate with Davidia this year. Loads of them. Ah, uh, that was literally my question. Do you sell Davidia? I do so now. You do now. <laughs> yes, excellent. <laughs> two years germination. So, yeah, those yep. seeds I put down This two is years the ago. handkerchief tree for mm. people who are wondering what a Davidia is. Yeah. Two years germination. What do you do in that two years? You just put them to one side and forget about them. Don't water, feed, nothing. Doesn't well, sting out there. There's no point in no, feeding. Yeah. 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 I just put them, put them under a tree and leave them alone. They do their thing. Yeah, they do. And this year they germinated like crazy. Mm. Probably 100%, I reckon. Great. Because, yeah. A.B., Craig has got a big Davidia in his garden, and when it's in flower, it is just yeah. stunning. I wanted to uh, do a story on it in the mag, but it looked really hard to find. Oh, Come up when they're in flower, because there's one at Periander down the road, which is enormous. The Periander one is just it's a big to tree. die for. Yeah, it's a big tree. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And I think Jeremy's got them in his garden too. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there, if you go up the mountain, you can see some really great peri Um The Periander one would be out in spring. Yeah, they're spring flowering. Yeah, yeah so it's really... Uh, Such a it's, pretty plant. It's a hidden garden, Periander, just down from Craig's. It is... You've got to be fit because it's deep, yep. but it's absolutely beautiful. It's got the most beautiful trees. It is really a fabulous, and it's a, a garden open to the public all the time. Okay. It's fabulous. Sounds good. Mm. All right, another text. Good morning. Thank you for your excellent show. You're welcome. Uh, any tips for getting rid of an established blue plumbago with underground runners across several metres without using chemical herbicides thanks heaps from name and the plumbago is in albert park not that that really makes any difference mm, you know this probably would be one of those instances where i would recommend just dabbing on so as soon as you've cut the stems at ground level just dab on straight round up yep 70%, yeah. 70% round up, 30% water. And, and the reason I say that is if, if you water it down a little bit, it's not okay. so viscous gotcha. and, and the and stems suck it in quickly. Yeah. And yeah. you really, you only need a couple of drops. And if you're painting it, yeah. you know, you're putting it directly just onto that plant. You're not going to go near any other plant. I, it, it's a difficult one. Yeah. I've got blackberries all over them. I've got 16 acres and I've got blackberries. Now, there's no point in thinking I can get rid of blackberries without using something nasty. But you can't get rid of blackberries because every little root that you leave behind reshoots again. But you can, you can limit them and limit them and limit them. And also, if you limit things continually and consistently, it mm. does eventually get rid of them. Like Wandering Jew, I just sit down and... I, went, I had a lot of wandering Jew, climbing Jesus, as I like to call it. And I used to just sit when I was on the phone, particularly to somebody in England, I was going to talk for a while, and I'd sit down in the garden, and while I'm on the phone, I'd just pull out the wandering Jew, put it on a piece of newspaper and pull it out, and eventually I got rid of all of it. It can be done. But I do think AB's right. In this case, if you're... Just a little bit. Just a, yeah. yeah, otherwise you've got to flex your muscles. And it's likely, you know, it could be going under a fence, could yeah. be under concrete, yeah. anything. Yeah. Mm. So, so, yeah, sometimes a tiny bit of uh, herbicide is not a bad thing. Well, look, I mean, I find in a big garden it's unavoidable. Yeah. Yep, I agree. 
All right, let's go to Liam in Hobart. Good morning, Liam. Hi, everyone. Are um, you our yes. Liam Kelly? I, I am. Oh, yes. hello. Lovely to meet you. Liam is one of the wonderful lads that is going to be taking over our social media. So thanks, Liam. Yeah, no worries. It's um, great to be a part of it. Um, yeah, welcome back. Thank you. And you're in, you're in Tassie, so I, what question do I you am. have? Well, look, I have a um, couple of questions probably directed at Craig. Um, well, the first one being Curiander-related. I was up there a couple of years ago, um, and there was a shrub growing sort of... Well, I'm going to give really vague directions here, but at the, sort of at the bottom of the hill, under trees, like masses of it. Um, and I suspect it was maybe a Plectranthus. Mm-hmm. Would I be correct in that? Plectranthus eclomii, most likely. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it might be that, and um, that, that's really great because I it was really impressive. Um, you know, growing in pretty heavy shade, and mm. I wanted to um, to try and get something like that going on at my place. So, it's not difficult, and it's really easy from cuttings. It just looks at the propagating mix and starts making roots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. No, I have some on the go. So that's that's great. Um, the other thing was. Uh, a pruning related question um, pruning in English elms um, I made the mistake um, of taking off a limb a few years ago of an elm at home and it just shot out like a, a huge mass of um, water shoots and I suspect I possibly pruned at the wrong time of year I can't remember when it was exactly but I just wondered if you had any sort of rules for pruning um, trees that are prone to do that. Um, prune them really flush to the trunk so that so that there's no, you know, um, where the branch joins the trunk, you have that little raised section. Yeah. You need yep. to take that off. Right, yeah. So that, because so that's, that, that's right. where all the um, epicormic uh, buds. buds are sitting. Yeah, okay, yep. yeah. Oh, that's that's really good. So if I then you know take the chainsaw to that that sort of mass right back at the trunk, you think that'll that'll fix that? It makes it a little better. It's not going to fix it entirely, mm. but it will make it a little better. And do it in winter. I don't think it matters what time of year. I mean, yeah, they're okay. just so they're just aren't. Liam, there are some elms and um, ash are the two that if you if you damage them at anywhere around the root, they just spring up. I mean, they're just not, given, notorious for it. Given mm. that we've got the last great stand of elms in the world, because we're the only country that doesn't get the elm leaf beetle, mm. um, we need to treat our elms with some respect because mm. they're here and they're alive. But yeah, they they are problematic in that way. Nothing worse than mowing over an ash or an elm. You'll have it everywhere. Mm. Yeah, well, thankfully I don't have to mow around these, but it's, it's sort of a limb up in the tree and now there's sort of a, a huge ball in the centre of it where these, these shoots have come <laughs> out. And it's yeah. really, really strange. Um, oh, okay, well, that's, that's really good to know. And I sort of thought maybe, um, you know, depending, Depending on the time of year, because of sap flow or something, there might be um, a rule there, but maybe it doesn't matter. If if the the, the 
section of the tree that has all the epicormic buds is, is undamaged, then doesn't matter what time of year because in spring they'll just bounce away again anyway. Yeah, sure. Mm. All right, thanks very much. And I can second that um, Hamamelis uh, does really well down here. Excellent. Well, did well, you get a lot of flowers on them? Like laden? Yeah, yeah there's a number of them um, in, in the gardens around where I live, um, pretty much in town. Um, so, yeah, they, they seem to like it. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Mm. They'll have everyone. to get rosies. That's right. Put <laughs> Except in the she post. can't send it down to him. <laughs> yeah. no. Welcome to the team, Liam. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Chat later, Liam. Bye. Very good. So oh. the phones are working again. Yeah, the phones Excellent. are working. Excellent. Yes, very good. Um, are you, Jane, going to the Flower and Garden Show? Will you I, have a stall there? I am. Oh, so people yeah. can come and get um, lovely Lots of bulbs. bulbs. Yeah, lots of mm -hmm. bulbs um, at the Flower and Garden Show, which um, incidentally starts on the 20th of March this year. So mm. it's Wednesday the 20th, runs from the Wednesday to the Sunday. So it's a week earlier. Um, which is, you know, a, a little bit concerning on my packing because mm -hmm. um, it usually takes me a couple of months to get oh organised for yeah. Melbourne because it's a big thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so any of our listeners just come and say hello. Mm -hmm. That would be great. Yeah. So we sell a lot of um, the autumn flower things like Noreen's are out in flower then um, and everybody says to me, oh, how can you sell them now while they're flowering? Um, because it, a Noreen bulb is um, essentially dormant while it's flowering. It makes all the new roots and leaves through the winter. Um, so that's the time to actually dig and divide your nareens is anywhere from January through to middle of February. Literally every time you open your mouth, I learn <laughs> the most amazing things. You're just crazy, woman, how much you know. No, not really. And um, what will you be selling at Fernie Creek on the 9th and 10th um, of March? Fernie Creek, um, yeah, some of the, the general things like nareens, like chorus, culture come, but... It's the chance where I can take some things that I might only have half a dozen of. So I will be having Fritillaria persica, um, which, you know, I haven't had on a list for years. Um, just some of the other rarer woodlandy things, like we talk about erythroniums, trout lilies. Uh, there's a couple of different ones that I'll only have half a dozen of. Um, yeah, so that, that's a good, fun place to release some new things because you get really, really keen gardeners go to that one too. So. I yeah. have tried so many times to grow Lycoris. Mm. You're probably too shady. Um, no, I've had them in the hot sun. Had them in the hot sun too. Had them in the hot sun. Yeah. And when I was in Japan, I saw them growing on the mounds between rice paddies. Yeah, especially so they radiata. Must like a lot of wet. They they tolerate a lot more wet. Well, uh, specifically radiata itself is the one that will tolerate a lot more wet. It's it's like the Meliagris mm -hmm. of Lycoris. Okay. Um, the problem I, I think is that our winter is very cold, and mm. you're even colder on the hill than mm -hmm. like I'm off the hill compared to you. Um, they don't like frost mm. and I think the cold of the winter is a little bit more difficult for lycoris in like down in Melbourne great Sydney fantastic like the okay. the yellow one lycoris aurea which they call the yellow noreen occasionally mm. um, flowers exceptionally well which is what so. I want yeah it's okay. subtropical okay <laughs> um, well no Craig you can't have it <laughs> right. only grow what you can grow yeah. I absolutely I agree but we used to we used to pick lycoris aurea as a cut flower like we it, we had sort of a bit of an acre of them kind mm -hmm. of thing um, and it flowered really well right out in the open but over the winter dad would put 
polyhouses over them, so okay. just to protect from the frost and things like that. But um, I'm not into doing that mm. anymore. We have a three strikes policy yeah. in mm-hmm. my garden, so okay. I'll try things three times. I'll bring you up a bulb with a flower on the end <laughs> yeah, of it, and you can plant it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. protection around it and you know, yeah. Yeah. nurture it. But the, I mean, for me, the the plant shows are always fun because you get to to meet people that are interested in things and um i I quite often get people go do you mind if i ask a question please don't ever be afraid to ask a nursery person a question Mm. there is no stupid question um please don't feel dumb or it's the only way we learn about things is to ask a question Mm -hmm. so you know um yes we get really really busy at melbourne but i tend to make sure like i have a amazing team of friends behind me that all come and volunteer yeah. down there that's their retail therapy for the year which is really sad but um <laughs> and you know so it tends to normally leave Kirill and I free to answer people's questions mm-hmm. because I think it's important and there is quite a few people that come in and ask a question they go oh thank you for taking the time other people don't so I think you know that's a bit bad in our industry too that if we're not taking the time to answer people's questions well you know and always email me. I get to them eventually. Yeah. I don't like the computer. I'd rather be outside. But if you send me an email with a question, like heaps of people email me photos, can you ID this? And if yeah, I know, I usually. know. Yeah, like, like <laughs> me. Yeah. Um, I will get to them eventually because I think it's important that we educate people. Sorry, mm. I'll get off my high horse. Mm. No, no, that, that's great. And, I mean, your packages include really good instructions, instructions and things as yeah well. and you know people still get home and say i bought bought this at the flower show i'm just not quite sure how to plant it um and then there is the other people that sort of ring six months later and go oh my noreens are still in their packet can i plant them now <laughs> and i go oh my goodness poor yeah so mm. basically rule of thumb if you're buying packeted bulbs from anywhere plant them asap everybody Okay. Yeah. And if you're unsure about which way up they should go, plant put them on, on their side. side. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Hedge yep. your bets. Yep. Hedge yeah. your bets, and, and and it will write itself into that's the, right. right. Yeah. I mean that does make sense because obviously if the bulbs are available for sale, they're dormant. So yeah, it's yeah. Yep. So please just you know after the flower show, a couple of weeks. Um, we got Easter in between other things. So um, over Easter, plant all your bulbs that you buy, and come and visit me and buy heaps. No. What plant? What bulbs need chilling? <laughs> Nothing I grow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, the, the big uh, Dutch hybrid tulips mm-hmm. need chilling. Yep. And why would you do something so difficult? Well, I think nowadays, Ginny, people buy them. Like you, you can buy twenty tulip bulbs for twenty dollars, kind of thing, and, and treat it as an annual. Yeah. Um, which is kind of sad for the bulb too, I think. But also but some of those bulbs have actually been imported from certainly Europe. Yeah. And so they, they're they not going to perform the following year anyway because no. they've got it, to switch seasons. Yeah, and plus the the whole thing of importing bulbs now, it is through methyl bromide and then hot water treatment, which I think is up to 55 degrees Celsius. Um, so we can only import things like tulips and that that will tolerate that. Uh, the number of people that say to me, oh, so hyacinths are an annual. And I, I sort of was a bit taken back. I'm like, uh, no. Um, they keep buying hyacinths each year and they die. And that's because of that treatment that they get when they come in. It's not just a, adjusting sort of out of climate. Um, it's adjusting to those sort of rigorous things that they the bulb has to go through, which is 
all fair. Um, we don't want diseases and things here either. Uh, so I think just be careful. Um, maybe ask, are these Australian grown? Mm. I think with all cut flowers also that's a very important mm. question because a lot of cut flowers, they actually dip them in Roundup before they sell them because they don't want you to propagate from them. Certainly do. And mm. that's, I just think the thought of putting Roundup dipped things in my vase in my House middle is, of my yeah. dining table is not a nice thought. Mm. A lot of them come from Kenya or um, East Africa too. Mm. There's an app called Grown Not Flown, mm-hmm. if you guys know that, where you can hop on and put in whatever location you're at and um, the app will let you know where you can find Australian grown cut flowers. Mm-hmm. There's such a contradiction in this, isn't there? You know, we don't want we don't approve of the air miles and et cetera, but then again for that Kenyan farmer who yeah, we also want to support that Kenyan farmer. So there's a, such a contradiction in the way. But are they Kenyan farmers or are they Kenyans working on European-owned farms? Oh, I think they're quite often Kenyan farmers okay. as well. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and the same, I mean, the same happened in the Caribbean with bananas and, and the bananas couldn't get into Europe because they had to meet such huge... And the only bananas that could get into Europe were... American-owned huge places because mm-hmm. they could fit into the, what their phytosanitary was and all the little banana growers on the windy sides of the windies, they just all went bust because they could no longer export to Europe. Yeah. So it's, there's a, oh, so many contradictions in the way that capitalism has developed. Mm. Yes. Another high horse, sorry. Yes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I might just quickly say um, whether we've given away those two double passes to we have that's excellent so if you've missed out this week next week there'll be another two double passes to the ferny creek plant fair so ring in next week and the week after etc yeah and in case you missed the start of the show there's um, some open gardens victoria three open gardens in sort of the rural barky ish area today or produce gardens virginia will be at one of them so you can hop onto the open gardens victoria website and with my big hat on yep check them out sounds really good we are coming to the end of everything what's what yes virginia wants to wave something at me oh oh persicaria white splendor it's one of craids and it's beautiful it's beautiful and especially since it grows in part shade yeah herbaceous perennial um, typical persicaria for flowers, pretty uninteresting flowers, but the foliage is fantastic. It's sort of green splashed with white, um, and it likes a little bit of moisture and part shade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that flash of white when you're in part shade, I think, is just fantastic. Essential. Mm, <laughs> yeah, it I think. It looks yellow to me, the white. Or is it very white? Uh, I think it varies. We could go with cream in between. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Persicaria. There are a number of different foliage-coloured or variegations in Persicaria. Because there's the red one. one. There's a red-leafed one as well. Red red dragon, is it? Yes, I think it is red dragon. And then there's painter's palette, which has a more structured variegation than this one. Will it do okay in dry shade as well? No. No. Okay. No, Just everyone asks for dry shade. Plectranthus. Great, great tub yeah. plant. Yeah. Yeah. Great tub plant. Okay. 
And there's not much that grows in dry shade, no, really. No. Plectranthus and clivia. Yeah, yeah. plectranthus. <coughs> plectranthus will get knocked by the heat, but yeah. it'll always come it back. It always comes back, but it can look pretty awful over the summer. It's not this year. I would say, <laughs> I would say, or Cuba, yeah. Fatsia, okay. and Clivia. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I hate and it, plenty Cuba. of natives. Plenty of natives will yeah. like dry shade. Yeah. But do they look good? I think they do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they grow naturally in those sorts of conditions. Under eucalypts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the forests. Yeah. Oh, no, there's, there's plenty. Plenty to grow in shady spots. But like... The- Corias. Corias. The starters. Gwashinotia mm-hmm. um, will even cope with a... Gwashinotia, really? Will cope with some sort of dappled shade. Dappled shade, yeah. yeah. Um, Lassiopetalum, mm-hmm. really, the velvet bushes. Which, really nice and I shade. adore Lassiopetalum. That is a really beautiful it plant. Is, yeah, mm. yeah you don't, mm. don't see it very often either. And it's quite a lot of it in the botanic gardens. Oh, and is it's, it? Yeah, okay. it's stunning. It's, and it's... Well, actually, some of it's not. Some of it's in a lot of sun and and very dry area. All right, guys. Well, we've got to wrap up. That was a very, very lovely chat with you all. I'd like to thank Jane Tonkin, Craig Wilson and Virginia Hayward for being on the other side of the bench. Thanks, guys, for coming thank in. Thank you. Thank you to Doug Humbert and Matt O'Dwyer for producing today, waving from the other room. And thank you uh, to Daniel for doing our socials this month. And so he'll be putting up some photos once we send them through. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. We will be back here again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.